This is PRN, your as-needed dose of medical knowledge. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. And I'm Chandler Davis. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice for the practice of medicine. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Edward Via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer. In today's episode, you'll be able to hear from Dr. Eric Stanley about what a typical day looks like for an emergency medicine physician. We also got the chance to talk about the role COVID has played in the emergency department. And then finally, we finished up the episode with some guidance and advice for those interested in the field. I hope you enjoy. I want to first start out by thanking you, Dr. Stanley, for coming on to the PRN podcast. And I know that a lot of students are really excited to hear from an emergency medicine physician, especially in the crazy time right now, but a lot of students and a lot of peers of mine are interested in emergency medicine. So I think a lot of people are excited to hear from you. Um, I want you to go ahead and just introduce yourself and just let the audience know what you do for a career and anything that you want them to know. Yeah, well, uh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, like you said, um, I'm Dr. Stanley. I am the emergency uh, chair for VCOM. Um, I work at uh, Carilion Clinic in the New River Valley. Um, I uh, went to med school at uh, Pikeville College of Osteopathic Medicine, graduated in uh, 2004, and then moved uh, back to Blacksburg in 2011, um, Virginia Tech, where I did my undergrad. So good to be good to be close to my season tickets. Yeah, exactly. Did you know initially on that you wanted to come back to Blacksburg or? Um, was that something that you made uh, later on in your med school and um, just career? I always hoped uh, that I could make it back to Blacksburg, but it's actually kind of a tough town to work in. The the market is pretty tight, except for medicine. So medicine's pretty flexible. So I was really happy when that kind of kind of worked out, and and my wife was willing to move here, so that was a total bonus too. Yeah, that's awesome. And going back to what you were talking about earlier for, um, you know, you were saying that you practice at New River Valley and your emergency medicine doc, but um, what, what kind of drew you to emergency medicine for a career? Yeah, so my path to emergency medicine um, kind of started in high school. I started volunteering uh, with a rescue squad uh, when I was a high school student. And uh, when I came to tech as an undergrad, I kind of carried over and I joined Blacksburg Rescue. Um, while I was there, kind of went from the EMT basic level to the advanced life support level, um, and then really got the bug for medicine after that. Um, so the my I would say my EMS background is what really propelled me into emergency medicine. Now, I will say, I tried to give everything a fair shot as a med student. You know, you kind of, every month you think you want to be the kind of physician that you're, you know, rotating with. But um, in the end, it was a pretty easy decision for me. Nothing really kind of came close to emergency medicine. You know, going into a little bit more detail about what you do, uh, can you walk us through just a a typical shift? I know that's kind of hard to go into because emergency medicine offers a lot of um, uncertainty, Um, but if you could just kind of give us a generalized uh, overlook. Yeah, sure. You know, I will say that um, I think emergency medicine is a little bit underappreciated by med students in terms of how much fun it can be. And part of that is our fault as educators, but it's, it's sort of a necessary evil. Um, to, to rotate in emergency medicine, you really have to have had sort of all of the core rotations under your belt. You know, you really have to have family medicine, internal medicine, surgery, OBGYN, pediatrics. 
Um, because when you, when you start a shift in the emergency department, uh, you really have no idea what it is that you're going to see. And to me, that's really one of the broader appeals to emergency medicine uh, is that, you know, you walk in and there's nothing planned. You know, you're not going to be seeing your post-operative patients. You know, you're not going to be rounding. You're going to, you're going to walk in and the day brings what it brings. So, you know, for most emergency physicians, it's uh, shift work. Uh, so where I work, we have a rotating shift. So sometimes you're working early in the morning. Sometimes you're working sort of the midday shift. Sometimes you're working a late evening shift. And then sometimes you're working uh, an overnight shift. So, you know, you kind of float through those shifts, um, which is great. It gives you a lot of flexibility in your schedule. So emergency medicine is great because if I need to be off for, say, my son's soccer game, it's pretty easy to schedule that around um, and still be able to work a shift that day. Um, so generally speaking, though, when you when you get to the emergency department, you – Log into the computer, you look at the tracking board, and you typically will take either the highest acuity patient on the board that's next to be seen, um, or if they're all about the same level of acuity, you'd pick the person who's been waiting the longest. <laughs> so that's, mm-hmm. that's how your shift kind of starts. And then throughout the shift, you can expect multiple interruptions as the highest levels of acuity either come in by EMS or even, you know, come in by private vehicle. I'm assuming that there's some shifts where there really is not much happening, and then there's some, like you were describing earlier to me before we started recording, that there's just uh, not any downtime. Yeah, you know, it's really variable. A lot of it has to do with the size emergency department that you work in. Um, so where I work primarily at New River Valley, um, you know, we're a mid-sized shop. You know, we see 30,000-ish visits a year. Uh, if you compare that to, say, um, a big academic uh, medical center with an emergency department, they're usually somewhere between, say, 60 and 100,000 visits, just kind of depending on, on where they are. So, yeah, some days you can expect to have more of a relaxed day. Some days it's going to be a lot busier. I would say that a good way to kind of frame uh, how many how busy you're going to be is most emergency physicians working in a pretty steady emergency department are going to average around two patients an hour. Um, you know, some shops are much busier. You have a lot more resources. You might be able to average, you know, three to four patients an hour. Uh, but but around two patients, 2.5 patients, I think, is about the national average for, for what you're going to see. The exceptions to that would be if you work in a really rural setting. So um, we have, in Virginia, we have critical access hospitals, and those are hospitals that are out in really, really rural places with pretty low population density, you know, locally, uh, Giles Community Hospital is a good example of that. Um, Mm. And Giles is kind of a wild place to work. You don't have a lot of resources, um, and you might have a day where you only see five or six patients, but you also might absolutely get hosed and have a day where you see 30 patients all by yourself. Um, Mm. So it's it's just a really wild place. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. How much of this do you think has changed since COVID began? I know that's probably a popular question you're getting now. Yeah, COVID's really been an interesting phenomenon in the emergency department. You know, sort of the pre-outbreak stages of COVID, when we we sort of knew that it was coming, uh, we did a lot of pre-planning. You know, we did a lot of um, contingency work. We expanded the emergency department. We made a lot of rooms negative pressure so that we could have you know, actively infected patients in there and know that we weren't uh, putting our, our staff at risk. We did all this amazing prep work. And then here, at least in our area, nothing happened for about four months. Um, so 
we had gone from a daily census in the emergency department at my shop to somewhere between, you know, I don't know, 80 and 100 people. Um, and it dropped down to maybe 15 to 20 patients a day. Um, and I really think that was a lot of the community angst about coming to the emergency department. You know, they kind of saw the emergency department as this potentially dangerous place, this place that you could go and get COVID. So I think a lot of people really kind of shied away from coming to the ED and, and really healthcare in general. So we saw a huge dip in numbers, and that was really unexpected, really quite bizarre. A lot of hospital systems nationally saw the same thing, lots of preparation and extremely low volumes. Um, which for a while, to be honest, was really nice. It was like, Haha, easy days, this is great. Um, but then it actually started to take a toll on uh, medicine as an institution. So a lot of elective surgeries had been, um, you know, delayed, rescheduled, canceled, uh, and that really started to put uh, a hurt on um, hospitals' bottom lines nationwide, um, which led to some pretty crazy things. So that led to staffing changes. So we ended up having to furlough an awful lot of employees. We cut back on nursing hours pretty dramatically as it kind of drug on and we still weren't seeing increased patient volumes. We actually cut back on physician staffing hours. Um, and then ultimately, we even uh, cut back on uh, physician and administrator pay rates to keep the institution afloat. And our, our story here wasn't uh, unique. That was happening kind of nationwide. Um, at Carilion Clinic, we cut back on um, so the sort of C-suite staff, like the COO and the CFO type positions took a pay cut. And ultimately that trickled down to our providers as well. Um, so our providers had to take a pay cut to kind of get us through these really low volumes uh, and lack of surgical cases that we were seeing uh, throughout the COVID area. Uh, now, as patients have returned and as things have kind of gotten back to baseline, uh, fortunately a lot of those um, changes have been reversed and we're you know, we're back to our normal staffing hours and we're back to our, our normal pay rates, which is nice. Um, but we have started to see an increase in COVID cases, especially with the return of the students here locally. So where a normal shift might have been before, you maybe make one or two COVID diagnoses a month. We're seeing patients that have known COVID almost every day and we're making presumptive COVID diagnoses, um, you know, several times a shift now. Right, right. That's that's really I think that's really interesting. I would not have thought that um, any of the healthcare industry would be hurting. And I think many people that aren't even involved at all would assume that all hospitals are doing quite well with regards to business um, because there seems to be, uh, from their perspective, an abundance of patients all of a sudden. But, yeah, once you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, even myself or not that I needed to go to a, the emergency room anytime soon, but yeah, there's that, that apprehension to even want to go inside of a hospital, even if you, you know, you might need it. So that, that's actually really interesting. It is. And there's, there's some surprising things that have kind of followed along with that. So I'm still pretty active in the EMS world. And um, in the COVID era, we have seen a much higher rate of death at home than we saw pre COVID. So, you know, the suspicion there, the hypothesis would be that all of those people that didn't come to the emergency department during the COVID sort of uh, scare, if you will, as we were doing all this prep work, um, are now dying at home. Um, it was bizarre for a while. I would go to work and, you know, you'd only see, you know, 10, 15 patients, which was really low for our shifts. Um, but you would wonder to yourself, you know, where are the acute appendicitis? Where are 
the STEMIs. Like these, these disease processes have not ceased, but people just aren't here. Um, so it's not, not terribly surprising to me that the at home death rate is higher than it was. Um, I feel like we, you know, you and I could probably talk about COVID stuff all, uh, all podcasts, but I kind of wanted to, um, go back to a little bit of what you were talking about. Um, just the basics of, of kind of the shift stuff. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff has changed since COVID has come around. Um, but do you think you could walk through, um, even what, a typical week and maybe even month looks like, not necessarily with regards to patients, but with regards to hours. I know that's very dependent on your contract, but, you know, that's a hot topic for a lot of students when they're thinking about things that they want to go into. Part of the thing that they're thinking about is, well, how much time is it going to take me away from my family or or friends or whatever? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So uh, in terms of uh, emergency medicine, uh, you know, it's all shift work, which, uh, is, is easy uh, to think about in terms of how many hours you're going to put into it. Most physicians work something like a 40-hour work week. Um, so you get a contract in emergency medicine, you're contracting for, you know, 40 hours a week or some fraction of that. You know, you take what they call an, uh, an FTE, a full-time equivalent. So one FTE would be 40 hours. And you can choose if you want to be a 0.9 or 0.8, whatever meets the full-time requirement for, for benefits is usually kind of the driving factor there. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to kind of do a schedule, and it, it will really vary from hospital to hospital. Um, but uh, a lot of people do a month schedule. So you'll have, you know, 40-hour work week, and you'll have the entire month to spread out those shifts. So one of the nice things about emergency medicine is if you know you have something coming up, like let's say you want to go to the beach for a week, you can sort of preload the week before and, you know, kind of backload the week after um, so that you can um, get that uh, week off without really affecting any of your hours. So that's, that's one benefit to emergency medicine. Where I work, we have um, a schedule that comes out in 10-week chunks, um, so it's really easy to kind of spread things out. So some, some weeks I will only work maybe one or two shifts even. Uh, and then other weeks, you know, I might work four or five shifts just kind of to make the math even out. Uh, but it's it's really flexible, and most people sort of build the schedule that suits their lifestyle. Another really important thing about emergency medicine um, that at least that was important to me is being shift work. When you're at work, you're working, and when you leave, you leave that all at work. So I don't I don't take call. You know, I I have a work phone. Honestly, I turn it off when I get home. No one can call me on it because if I'm not at work, I don't want to hear about work. Um, you know, so in that regard, it's really nice. You know, you don't you don't have to get up early to round. You're not going to be woken up in the middle of the night to answer questions about your patients. So your your off time is your time. And I will say that like the flexibility um, of emergency medicine and kind of the lifestyle that uh, it affords does come at somewhat of a price. So you have to be willing to work nights, weekends, and holidays. So right. most groups will, will take turns with that stuff, um, although some, some groups have a dedicated nighttime doc, which is really nice. You should really take care of that doctor if you do. But, um, you know, you will have every other Christmas off and, you know, every other Thanksgiving and that kind of thing, where some specialties don't really have to deal with that maybe as much. Right. Yeah, that's those are some good points. I kind of want to uh, bring it also back. You know, we were talking about hours and and the lifestyle stuff, but you know, absolutely the most important thing that doctors are dealing with is the types of patients, and that draws people towards the field that they go into. So, what what 
this could be dependent on region and where you practice, but what are some of the most common types of patients that you're seeing on a regular shift? Yeah, you know, I think that you will see plenty of, say, chest pain and abdominal pain. Um, that's pretty common in the emergency department, but you'll also see just a ton of lacerations. Um, you know, uh, headaches are pretty common. Shortness of breath, obviously, right now, especially with COVID, um, is, is extremely common. But, you know, to me, the great thing is you could really see anything. Um, you know, the diversity is, is really um, impressive. All right, so this is from my last shift, which was a bit of a, a busy shift. Um, and this is in the COVID era, so kind of keep that in mind. But here's the rundown of the patients I saw. I saw abdominal pain, stroke, chest pain. Uh, cellulitis, uh, dislocated shoulder, uh, bladder mass with urinary obstruction, another abdominal pain, another abdominal pain, chest pain in a positive COVID patient, lower extremity swelling and shortness of breath, uh, palpitations, which turned out to be supraventricular tachycardia, nausea and vomiting with an incidental finding of pregnancy. She was very surprised. Uh, <laughs> vaginal bleeding, <laughs> abdominal pain. This is a night shift. Uh, so this is alcohol intoxication from, uh, a local university, uh, chest pain, uh, visual changes, which turned out to be um, a manifestation of schizophrenia. So that was very interesting. Uh, post-operative infection, um, rash and shortness of breath. Um, that was an interesting patient. I still have no idea what's wrong with her. Ulcer mental status. Um, this was a person who came in with AFib with RVR, another abdominal pain, another abdominal pain, uh, dental pain with facial abscess, and another abdominal pain. So of those abdominal pains, I think I had one patient who turned out to have an acute appendicitis, uh, two patients that had um, uh, cholelithiasis, and one that had uh, acute cholecystitis. Mm. So there's some quite quite some variability there. I mean, that, that definitely um, I can see why the the attraction for someone that just kind of wants to know a little bit about everything. I think that's one of the things we're told is emergency medicine is one of those fields where if you want to be a jack of all trades, maybe not be the expert at something, but, um, you know, you get you definitely get your feet wet in a ton of different areas. Yeah, you know, I think the interesting thing about emergency medicine is you need to know the first, say, 10 steps to every disaster that you could possibly encounter. Um, and beyond that, you know, that's the, the point once you've stabilized that you're going to turn it over to a specialist. But yeah, the diversity in the emergency department is, is really cool. Now, one thing that you'll, you might notice was missing from that list is pediatric complaints. Um, and interestingly, in the COVID area or era, we're just not seeing peds like we used to. Those people aren't coming in. Generally speaking, you also have, uh, more, say, lacerations and things. Now, my shop has mid-level providers. So I usually turf all of the lacerations, uh, to them just because they're very time consuming. Um, so it's not that they weren't in the emergency department that night. It's just that that wasn't what I was doing. Mm. Continuing on with the, the types of patients you're seeing, in in your opinion, this can vary from provider to provider. What do you think are the, is either the or some of the most exciting types of cases that are coming into your ER? Yeah, that's a great question. So I will tell you that it it very much depends on the age of the emergency physician that you ask, um, because when you're fresh out of residency, most folks are really excited about trauma. You know, trauma, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of energy in the room with a trauma patient. There's usually a lot to do. 
Um, but sort of as you progress through your emergency medicine career, what you come to recognize about trauma is it's, it's typically the same thing over and over and over again. So it's, it's typically very pattern-oriented. Um, and I find as providers get older, they tend to really like challenging medical cases. So, you know, um, resuscitations during cardiac arrest become a lot more interesting because it's a lot more cerebral. You're really trying to pick apart the underlying causes. Um, and uh, my personal favorite has always been airway challenges. So the patient that comes in in respiratory distress with altered mental status who's not managing their airway and needs an emergent intubation um, and all of the things that that brings with it, you know, all of the complexities given their other comorbidities, um, to me, that's my favorite kind of patient. I guess, uh, is it is that because of the the urgency behind that and just the, the things that can cause that? Yeah, you know, I think that airway is very challenging, um, to, and you don't have a lot of time to to maybe say get it right. So you have to be on top of your game. You have to be very proficient, and you really have to think three or four steps ahead with a, with a difficult airway. You know, so what what are the tools I'm going to need? What am I going to do when I fail with that tool? What's my backup tool? What if I can't get it with my backup tool? You know, what's my next step? You know, ultimately, you have to be comfortable doing um, a cricothyroidotomy in the emergency department when you're innovating people because it's, it's sort of the final common pathway, sort of that funnel approach at the end of the funnel, the bottom of the funnel is crike. So anytime you innovate someone, there's always a possibility that it may end in crike if you can't get the tube. So right. it's just a really kind of interesting environment. Now, I will right. say, the other thing that people like about emergency medicine is there there is the opportunity to do rare procedures. So they don't come up a lot, but, you know, like cracking a chest and, uh, you know, sewing a heart uh, to, to fix a bleed, um, you know, those rare things are also an awful lot of fun, uh, but they're also not very common. Right. Well, this is kind of changing subjects a bit. Um but what what do you think are some of the common misconceptions about practicing as an emergency medicine physician? And that, that can come from two different perspectives. That can come from either the medical student perspective that it has, hasn't practiced as a physician yet or just the general public's perspective. Yeah, you know, I think the general public has a perception that, you know, it's all high-speed, low-drag all the time and that it's always high-acuity. Uh, and maybe even medical students to, to some degree there. And, you know, the truth is, there are certainly enough high-acuity patients to go around to keep it interesting, but a lot of what you end up doing uh, is sort of primary care. You're, you know, you see a lot of hypertensive urgency and emergency or just poorly controlled diabetes, um, you know, an awful lot of sort of bread-and-butter uh, internal medicine family practice stuff comes through the door. So there's a lot of that. I think medical students are often surprised at the amount of time that an emergency physician spends on the phone. Um, so you are constantly chasing down specialists to talk to them about their patients that have shown up in the emergency department or, you know, to ask, uh, get an opinion about the care of a particular patient with a uncommon presentation. Um, or if you work in a small center, you spend an awful lot of time trying to find a, a facility that can um, accept your patient and transfer if they need a service that your hospital doesn't have. So uh, like at my shop, we are We've been without neurology for a few years, so we have to transfer all of our stroke patients out if they have active neurologic symptoms in the ED, and that's extremely challenging, uh, especially right now in the COVID area or era because all of the beds are full in all of the surrounding hospitals, so there's just no beds available. So it's really uh, that's something that most people don't think about is that you you're on the phone chasing beds a lot. 
we were talking about it a bit earlier and you mentioned it and I wanted to ask, I completely forgot what the question was, but I remembered it now is, um, what are some of the, do you think the pros or cons necessarily for practicing at, uh, maybe like a mid-sized shop like you, you describe that you work at versus a big university? Yeah, you know, I will say that uh, a lot of people, especially early on in residency or maybe fresh out of residency, they think they want to work at that academic center. Um, and there are some real benefits to that. You know, if you want to be on the cutting edge of new therapies, you know, and innovation, then that's a good place to work. But a lot of times big academic centers have an awful lot of learners in line to to do things, um, which some people may see as a benefit, I guess. Uh, but if you like to do procedures yourself, if you want to put in chest tubes, if you want to innovate people, you know, if you want to be using the ultrasound, um, if there's a lot of learners that are supposed to be doing those things too, you're not actually going to do a lot uh, at a big center. And the same thing kind of goes with trauma. So if you're at a big trauma center, you know, the trauma surgeons are going to come down um, and they're going to be the ones doing a lot of those sort of um, rare procedures while you kind of stand on the sideline and watch. Um, if you're at, you know, a little bit um, more, say, rural uh, environment, all of those procedures are now yours, especially if you don't have med students and you don't have residents. Um, so, I think there's kind of a Goldilocks spot uh, for most people, depending on what it is that they want. You know, for what I want, I think I'm kind of at the perfect center. So we get um, a lot of sick patients, uh, and we don't have a lot of specialists uh, on hand to come and deal with them in the emergency department. So uh, that all falls to me, which is the current environment that I want to practice in. And one great thing about emergency medicine is as you age uh, and maybe say the environment that you're in becomes less and less appealing, you can kind of transition to a different shop, you know, that sees a different demographic of patients, that sees a different level of acuity. So if you kind of want to step down uh, as you as you get older and tireder, <laughs> you can do that in emergency medicine. Ultimately, if you wanted to end up at an urgent care, you know, that's certainly something that you could do. And that's not, a, not something that a lot of other specialties have. Right. Um, that's actually a perfect segue into my next question. Um, I know that the term burnout has become quite a, a, a buzzword around these days with, with regards to physicians and uh, the younger generation of physicians coming in. What, what do you think is some advice for students uh, with regards to how to avoid it and how to not become that uh, jaded physician that just kind of takes it out on their patients, you know? Yeah, you know, I think... Um Burnout is certainly multifactorial, but, uh, you know, I think the most important thing is to make sure you're picking a specialty that you really like. Uh, so a lot of people will pick a specialty maybe based on its income or based on what they think the schedule might be um, or whatever. But if they, if they pick it for the wrong reasons, if you don't actually enjoy going to work, that's certainly going to lead to increased rates of burnout. Um, you know, speaking specifically for emergency medicine, like I was alluding to before, I think you got to pick the shop uh, that you work in. You know, it sees the right mix of patients that you're looking for for that stage in your career, and you're not you're not overwhelmed, and the volume is not overwhelming, and the support services are what you want. Um, that certainly helps. Uh, again, I think you have to be a little bit selective about the specialty. Again, so you know, if you're if you're dreaming of, um, you know, glitzy procedures and blood guts and glory all day. Um, but you hadn't really thought about doing that nice weekends and holidays, you know, that's going to lead to to burnout as well. So I think those are the biggest factors that kind of kind of lead to it. And then the other thing that I think people make mistakes about 
um, is they might take a job based on the salary. So, you know, if you look at, say, emergency medicine nationwide, you're going to notice that in big cities, emergency physicians typically make less because there's a lot of demand to live in big cities. As you go more rural, uh, the pay rate goes up because they're really having to to pay more to get a board-certified emergency physician to come to them to practice. Well, if you choose your uh, city wrong, the place that you live, if you're going there strictly for financial reasons and that area doesn't have the things to offer you in your free time that you would normally like to do, of course, that's going to lead to higher rates of burnout. So actually, when I advise med students about picking a residency, you know, they often ask, well, should I pick this one based on its academics or should I pick this one? you know, based on whatever. And generally, I say the best strategy there is to pick residency programs that are close to the things that you like to do on your rare day off. Because most ACGM accredited uh, programs are going to provide you with an excellent education. You don't really have to worry about the quality. Yeah, that's some, that's some great advice. I like that. Um, I think going off of what you were saying, I think it really does um, you know, if you go into the wrong specialty for the, the wrong reasons, you're absolutely going to be unhappy. And it, um, going off of what you're saying, I can imagine that the, the types of patients that you're seeing can bring a lot of joy to you or a lot of, um, you know, a lot of burnout or just being exhausted at the end of the day because you're not ultimately helping a patient that you get a lot of satisfaction out of. Um, and this sounds really selfish. I don't mean it to sound that way, um, but ultimately it comes out to better care for the patient um, and ultimately developing better physicians. Um, and going off of what you were saying earlier with regards to things doing outside of the, ho- uh, the hospital and things that make you happy um, when you have that free day or just that one day off, what are some of the things that you like to do when you're off shift or when you're outside of the hospital? Well, uh, you know, certainly um – I like hanging out with my kids there at an interesting stage where they become uh, less annoying, so that's always good. Uh, <laughs> it's a free day for me. If they ever go back to school, uh, which I'm starting to doubt at this point, um, you know, I'm a big cyclist. I really like uh, road cycling. Uh, I like mountain biking too, but uh, you know, I really enjoy cycling on the road a lot. Um, I used to do a lot of caving, um, but again, with uh, with the pandemic going on, caving is sort of off limits for a lot of different reasons. One, it's hard to socially distance in a cave, but two, there's some concern, whether it's founded or not is unclear to me, but uh, there's some concern that we could actually give COVID to our native bat population. So caving is kind of on hold, unfortunately. Uh, but I also really like playing with uh, ropes. So high angle uh, rope rescue is another passion of mine um, in the EMS world. Right, so you're, you're still involved with uh, Blacksburg Rescue, correct? Yeah, so I'm the medical director of the physician that oversees um, Blacksburg Rescue Squad, in addition um, to uh, Dr. Iki and uh, Dr. LaPera, who um, assist me there at, at Blacksburg. And I also have a bunch of other squads kind of spread throughout uh, the county. So there's, um, uh, there's a rescue squad on the Arsenal property in Radford, uh, and I'm their medical director, uh, all of Pulaski County. Um, I'm their medical director in uh, Shawsville and Virginia Tech Rescue, the Student Rescue Squad at Radford as well. A couple other people. Hopefully they're not listening. They'll be mad if I leave them out. Right, right. Um, so what, for people that are interested, because I feel like I've gotten um, interest or I've heard interest in this, is uh, there's a there's like a few EMTs that end up going into 
medical school because it's the thing that they're interested in, but they want to continue that once they um, get their license to practice as a physician or they go through emergency medicine residency, what what opportunities are there for for student or I guess more so physicians um, that want to get involved with uh, a local rescue squad or uh, what do those opportunities look like? So there's a, a couple different paths there. Um, the, if you are interested in doing medical direction for rescue squads, the first thing that you would need to do is become uh, a medical director registered with uh, the state that you're in. Um, most states would require you to have had some type of a medical director's course, um, and, and those are usually not a big deal. It's like a weekend kind of course, or um, there's a, an organization, um, NAEMSP, which is the National Association of EMS Physicians, they actually offer a really great course on how to become a medical director at their national conference. Uh, so that's a great way to get experience there. Um, but uh, if you if you really have a passion for EMS and you know that it you want it to be a big part of your career as a physician, you can do an EMS fellowship. Um, the fellowship is open to most types of physicians, assuming that they sort of meet the entrance requirements. But by and large who we see coming into EMS fellowships are board-certified emergency physicians who have completed their uh, their residency in emergency medicine and then come into an EMS fellowship um, for a year, sometimes two years, depending on how the fellowship is structured, to focus um, strictly on EMS for that one year so that they're well-prepared to go into a bigger EMS system um, and, and lead a big, uh, you know, operation. Cool. Yeah, that sounds like there's some a lot of good opportunity there. Uh, I didn't know that that was actually a fellowship. I'm I'm learning something new. Awesome. Yeah. I, I there's only a couple more questions, and we'll we'll wrap up here. I think this is a lot of great information, and I feel like there's a lot of topics that we've talked about. You could probably talk about for a whole podcast, um, and maybe maybe we'll set something up again. But what uh, going back to more general advice? Uh, what, what kind of advice do you think you have for someone that is interested in emergency medicine or better yet is kind of on the fence. They think it's their number one choice into going into it, but they're really not sure. Uh, so broadly speaking, um, I would say make sure that if you have an interest in emergency medicine, that you do your rotation in emergency medicine as early as possible in your fourth year. Um, most schools require emergency medicine to be a fourth year rotation uh, as I mentioned before, because you have to have all of those other specialties under your belt because you have the potential of seeing a patient from any of those different disciplines on any given shift. So it would be really unfair uh, for a student to, to, say, make their emergency medicine like their third or fourth rotation if they haven't done surgery and a surgical patient comes in or if they haven't done OBGYN and, you know, a, a pregnant lady's come in. You know, it, it puts you at a disadvantage. So for most students, it's, it's a fourth-year rotation. So if you have an interest in it, Try to do it as early as possible in the fourth year so that you can get a taste of it and decide whether you want to pursue it. Um, the application cycle being the way that it is, most candidates for emergency medicine are going to do two or three rotations in emergency medicine very early in the fourth year, um, get a letter of recommendation. There's a special one for emergency medicine, um, and then kind of start their interview trail um, sort of late October uh, early November through January. So that that early part of the fourth year is critically important for folks interested in emergency medicine. Now, some schools do let you um, do a rotation in third year, 
Uh, and if you have that luxury and you can meet the requirements, that's also um, a really great opportunity to get out there and get a flavor for it. So if you can do a third-year rotation, I would recommend it. You can do that at our institution, so you can do that at VCOM if you have had those core rotations um, under your belt already. Um, you can do those as an elective if you meet the requirements for that. Now, if you don't meet the requirements for that and you really want to get into an emergency department in the third year um, to see if you like it, then I would really advise um, a student to just go to the hospital that they're rotating, uh, find an emergency physician, and just ask if they can shadow them for a shift. Uh, now, depending on your school, there may be requirements about whether or not you can make patient contact on that shadow shift, but sometimes just being there for an entire shift and really kind of seeing the rhythm of the emergency department, kind of seeing how that physician works throughout the day can be really helpful. Um, and short of that, you know, take every opportunity, if you're interested in emergency medicine, to go to the emergency department when you're on another service. So if you're on internal medicine, you know, volunteer to go down and see the patients that need to be admitted from the ED so that you can go be in the ED and see if you like that environment. You know, the same goes for, say, um, a surgery or, you know, whatever whatever excuse you might have to slip down into the ED is always good. Right. No, that's that's some great advice. I, I like that a lot. Um, and then continuing on and, you know, it could it could compound off of what you were saying earlier. But we like to finish our our podcast with a, just a general advice question for medical students. Um, if you have any advice or, you know, any any extra motivation that students might need, um, we'd love to hear it. Oh, man, that's a tough one. Um so I would definitely say uh, don't be afraid to take a personal day. You know, your, your sort of mental health, I think, is sometimes overlooked, although I will say that I think BCOM actually does a pretty good job of encouraging people to look after themselves. But I think it's important to take a day uh, every now and then and, and really devote some time to the things that you're interested in outside of med school. You know, med school is really, really stressful, um, and I think it can really get the best of you if you let it so. It's important to do something um, other than med school every now and again. And then certainly I would say, um, you know, work hard to prepare for uh, your steps. So step one, step two, Comlex, uh, one and two, uh, really work on those. And, and my suggestion to everybody would be to, to spend as much time as you possibly can uh, in a question bank. Uh, what you'll find is there's only so much testable material, right, questions that really lend themselves to the material that you've studied. Um, and there's only so many ways to ask a question. So the more time you spend in a question bank, uh, the more you will see the same sort of topics coming up over and over again, and you'll see that there's only really five or six ways to answer that question or to ask that question. And that will really help you for your step one and step two if you've kind of seen some of those question styles uh, before you take the test. So. Awesome. That this was a, a great, great conversation we've had, Dr. Stanley. I've really enjoyed it. Um, we got to cover all different types of topics, and I'm sure that a lot of people will enjoy listening to it. Um, if you have, uh, is there a contact that you, you know, I can put in the description? You can let me know after the episode if you want me to put anything down. If students want to reach out to you, um, or better yet, we can have it a little bit more. Uh, privatized so you don't get a bunch of emails from random people but um, I really enjoyed this and um, I don't think I have anything else we'll have to do this again and yeah thank you for coming on well thanks for having me this has been fun
For more PRN, please be on the lookout. If you like this episode, tell someone about it and start up a conversation. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. I'm Chandler Davis. And this is PRN.